This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. We're going to pause for a moment. Uh, give you a little chance to do this. Ask questions. If you have any questions that you want to ask, ask questions. If you want to go and take uh, a break to go to the bathroom and come back or get a drink of water, do that at this time. But if you have any questions, let's, uh, let's ask those questions and let's include them. Just come to the to microphone there. Hopefully there will be, that microphone will be live. And uh, let's see. Yeah, it is. Okay. Um, do you have any questions? Do you have any, any comments? It, not only on, you know, it can be outside of what we've talked about. I just want to make sure that that if you have any questions that you... Would you go to the microphone so other people can hear you? Yeah, thank you. Um, I was just wondering where the reference is for the quote that Ellen White says that um, every problem we have is a lack of faith. Um, somebody look it up. If you have the E.G. White um, thing in your computer or something, uh, I don't have it in this presentation, but she does say that, that that uh, every failure, she says it this way, every failure, the word failure is used there, every failure in the, in the Christian walk or something uh, has to do with a lack of, our lack of faith. Something of that, to that effect. So when, when somebody finds it, let me know. In the, and say that again. Patriarchs and Prophets 657. Is that right? Let me see if I can find it here. 657, is that it? Thank you. Appreciate that. Let's uh, find the right wording. Every failure on the part of the children of God is due to their lack of faith. Yeah, thank you. All right, are there any other questions? Yes, please, thank you. My husband pastors a couple of different churches, and um, one of the, I guess, frustrations that I'm currently having as a pastor's wife is, I see your example of the eight people in Russia, and they got down and they prayed, and they were able to, you know, explode their church growth. What happens when it's really just the pastor and his wife? And the problem is, is you can't seem to move the congregation. You know, the church is dying. Nobody's really interested. I mean, they say that they're interested, but when the rubber meets the road, they're not doing anything. And we try to do all the training. We have all these different programs. And it just gets discouraging because you just feel like you're talking to a dead crowd. Excellent question. Thank you for asking that. Um, a couple of things I'd like to share about that. One is, sometimes God does not answer to the level and extent that we hope because He is waiting for us to discover the real problem. Sometimes, if He were to answer 
we would skip certain steps in our own character building in the process. Uh, sometimes, because I've, I've, I've seen that happen in my life and I've seen that happen in my ministry as well. Sometimes, if God were to bless us to the level that we hope He would, without changing my character to the level that needs to be changed, I may end up attributing to the, the work of God to all kinds of things. And I may become more vulnerable after the victories of God than before that. We must remember that commensurate to the level of God's success will be our level of surrender and sacrifice. Uh, every story you read, major mission work, mission stories, you know, the, 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 the powerful work of God in history, what you find in the, in the New Testament, you know, why, why was Paul was much, much more effective than Matthias was? Why was Peter more effective than other disciples? Perhaps because they grew to the level that they were willing to sacrifice at levels that others were not willing to sacrifice. So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect has nothing to do with ourselves. That's an aspect that may have to do with our, myself. But some things may have to do with others. Uh, History shows, I mean, Jesus is a good example. You cannot get better than Jesus in terms of being perfect in character and surrender to God. And yet, he didn't see the fruit of his labors to the level that the disciples did. He didn't, you know, he saw that thousands of people come to be healed by him or to be fed by him, but they were not totally committed. In fact, in, in, in John 6, you find a, a most remarkable dialogue, a monologue by Jesus at first, and then a dialogue, and, and when Jesus really makes it clear to them that it's all about self-surrender and about eating Him as the bread of life, you know, people leave Him in droves. And you would say, how could that happen? And yet it did happen. It does happen. So, sometimes it might be that the Spirit of God knows that it need, certain things need to mature around us. But the people that God was able to use, He was able to use in spite of whether or not they could see the results of their labor. They were, they were used in some significant way. Sometimes they didn't know it at that time. At the time. But even later, uh, you know, the, their record, their evidence, generations later, sometimes in, in mission experiences, people responded in powerful ways for the work that they had done then. So, our job, my job as a child of God, is to, my number one job, is to surrender all to Him. That's my number one job. And to leave it all in His hands. And to make sure that He could use me whenever He's ready to use me, that He could use me, and that I am willing to sacrifice everything that it takes to be successful. Because that's really what it means. If you're going to be successful in Christ, 
as Paul said to Timothy, you will be persecuted. In other words, if, it, it's commensurate to it. If you want to make little waves for God, then you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, the pain is going to be little. But if it's going to be significant, the devil is going to be after you because he's going to say, you're really messing with my kingdom here now. You know, uh, before, you're okay, you know, nice, nice little church out here, good person, but still not, not really shaking my place very much. But if, if that's where we are, you know, where God is leading us and what we're ready to do, then we need to be willing to surrender all in, in significant ways. And I'm not talking about masochism. I'm not talking about, you know, a martyr syndrome. I'm talking about a willingness to be led where God would lead us. And that begins with a statement on my part that says, God, I'm willing to trust you. Come what may. I... I will follow you. I long for you to use me in whatever way you can, however much you can. But I don't want you to not be able to use me because I'm stopping you from it. That's my, that's my prayer. You may be able to use me more, but you're not because I'm stopping you. I mean, that, I have sometimes, I have cried like a baby when I recognize that that is exactly the, play, the case with me. God could have used me so much more if I had surrendered that much more to Him. You mentioned the example of those two pastors in China, those lady pastors and their churches. Um, should we endorse women pastors or how do we make sense of those kind of things when so many churches split you know, over that topic? And we, can still, and we can see examples of women that have been effective in ministry. How do we make sense of all that? Good practical question. Well, we could really go on into this, but we're not going to. Let me just say this. It is clear to me that the Holy Spirit has endorsed these women because they have done things for God. I mean, this, the evidence is pretty clear. This is not king, kingdom building, not to the best evidence available. This is not you know, about themselves. This is clearly God at work, and so God is using these ladies. So God is sovereign. He can use whoever He wants to. He said He could use rocks if we were not available. Uh, that tells me that theologically I need to be a little bit more humble, perhaps, about what God is doing and what He's willing to do in be more open to saying, you know what, God, God, can do, God can use people that maybe in my philosophy, my, my whole construct, I just don't see how that could happen. The same question arises sometimes when God uses people who are not Seventh-day Adventists in the great work of God. Um, these people are willing to be used. So what I learned from that is I ask the question of my, to myself, am I willing to be used, am I willing to be used as an instrument as clearly, as, as transparently as some of these people are? That's my question to myself. I'm not saying that the question you should be asking yourself necessarily. I'm saying that's the question I ask myself. So I think the whole issue, you know, and I know what the... You know, a question like that normally makes us think about what's behind that, which is women's ordination and all of that. 
I think that those issues actually are a lot less important in the Bible than a number of other issues. We have made them to be a big deal. But I'm not sure God is making that to make it to be a big deal. God says, you know, there's a number of other things that are more important, and one of them is how much can I use you? How willing are you to be used? Um, and, you know, there is issues of culture and all of that, but that's a totally different discussion, and, and if somebody's interested, I'll discuss it with you uh, privately. But, uh, but I, I, I think that the Holy Spirit is clearly giving evidence that God is using these women. There's no doubt about it. In fact, men are learning from these women uh, because they really, they, they really, God is using them. So. Any other question? Any other thoughts? Yeah, please. Thank you. You mentioned that two of the biggest problems with Adventism of old and Adventism today was... Um, a lack of total surrender and a secular spirit. Um, I attend one of the larger churches in my conference and we've been seeing growth in the church but it seems like people come in and they become lukewarm right away. There's not, we don't, we don't have any of those classes or any of those sermons um, talking about some of the more difficult topics, some of the topics that hit close to the home that would cause a true reformation and a change in our personal lives. And we see in the spirit of prophecy that the shaking will be caused by the preaching of the straight testimony. And it seems like sometimes we as a church are a f we're afraid of preaching that straight testimony because we will lose numbers or the church might not grow as much. But we also at the same time have the promise that those who will step out from under the banner another one will take their place. So how should we as lay people and some of us even as pastors um, face this problem and um, I guess preach the straight testimony as opposed to just trying to be politically correct? Right, good, thank you. If, you, if this group was a group of seminary students, which is what I do, I teach at the seminary, uh, full-time there, um, I would have a very clear speech to make, which I make through all my classes every semester about that. We discuss these things. I will not make that speech, because that's a lot stronger speech than I will make here. Um, what I will say to answer your question is this. Do not depend on the past. God will use pastors, and we need to pray for pastors because pastors are regular people, just like we are. And pastors can be immensely blessed or immensely affected, negatively affected, by the church they pastor. Um, so we need to pray for pastors. I used to think that that was kind of a ho-hum thing when, you know, when these old saints would pray for the missionaries and all the pastors and I thought that was a trivial thing. No, it's a real thing. That's the real, that's the real McCoy. That's really important to do. So we need to pray for our pastors to be converted. We need to pray for our pastors to be surrendered. We need to pray for our pastors to be the men of God they actually wanted to be when they answered the call. What happens is uh, I, 
you know, what happens is that many pastors begin, but like in most things, when you work with people, especially volunteers, you adapt to the situation. You no longer, you, you, you leave behind the ideals and you become very pragmatic on a day-to-day basis. You say, what's going what's to survive? What's going to make it work? And so a pastor really asks, subconsciously asks that question all the time. You know, after a few years, after you lose the, the fervor of your first love, you, you just become, okay, we've got to survive, we've got to make it this week, we've got to make it, you know, with sister such and so, we've got to make it with a board on that. You know, this group of people are really giving me grief about this, or whatever it is, and that's, what, that's their life. The truth is, pastors need to be living above that, but that's not normal. That's abnormal. And that's abnormal for us as Christians, to live above our circumstances. That's why we need to pray for pastors about that. Secondly, again, I go back to that statement earlier. Let's not depend on the pastors. Ellen White makes that very clear. Here it is. Write it down somewhere. Uh, Volume 7 of the Testimonies, pages 18 to 23 are 18 to 22. Those five pages are some of the most um, excellent pages a church, church members can read about what God wants to see happen in the church in how the members are to relate to their pastors. Pastors are supposed to train, pastors are supposed to inspire, but pastors are not supposed to, you know, we're not supposed to depend on the pastors at all. The pastors are instruments of God to, to do this. Um, what if the pastors, the, the, the statement again is in, in volume 7 of the testimonies, so 70, 18 to 22. Um, what if the pastor, because sometimes pastors tend, to, sometimes pastors are a little secular. Sometimes pastors are a little You know, they're struggling. You don't need to wait for the pastor to get it together. You need to get it together. And so get it together with other people. Get together with friends. Pray with them. Study the Word of God. So you lack it Sabbath morning, you get flimsy sermons. You can't live on a good sermon once a week. Who lives on that? So, study the Word of God, get together in small groups, study the Word of God, engage in ministry. Even, even a secularized pastor will pick up, will, will pay attention to a group of people, especially if they're young, a group of people who are being Christ-like, and that's key, Christ-like, and effective in their ministry for Jesus. And they might say, hey, you know, I want to I learn from you, really. I, wanna, I, want, to, I want to see that. Um, so, don't depend on that. And as you pray to do the work of God, God will, will take care of it. And if it is a pastor who will not, who will be a problem eventually, God will remove that person and will, will, you know, will substitute it for somebody who, are, who is maybe more attuned to what God is trying to do. So, the important thing is not despair. God is in control. The question is, what am I doing? That's my question. What, will I, what can I do for the kingdom of God? What can I do that exalts Jesus, that, that honors His name, that 
is a blessing to other people? That's the question I have to ask. Yes, uh, in our church, like you said, uh, we have problems now these days with the pastors having a hard time, and we can see that. So what I used to do is like criticize. Why we don't have a good pastor? You know, you get indignated. But I think it's like indignation is holy, but we have to have compassion. And God showed me, what are you doing about you? You're pointing him, but what are you doing to bring souls to me? Don't worry about him. You do your part, and he will see how much you love Jesus. So what we did, I said, it's true, God. Give me souls. I'm thirsty. My English is not that perfect. My Spanish, I forgot. My, I mean, I'm a mess. But I have to do something for you because if I stay no moving, I'm just going to die here. I hate that. I love action because the Holy Spirit is moving constantly. And I don't like to be sitting here doing nothing. So, and when I start bringing, you know, re, uh, distributing literature, the pastor, I said, oh, pastor, I have these uh, people that you can visit. I went from door to door, and he says, oh, you're not going to dump that on me, are you? And I'm like, there he goes. God says, you see, you cannot trust the pastor. He, I was like a threat to him. And I said, oh, Lord, help me. And he, I had tears in my eyes. I was excited about doing this. And I said, no, Lord, I have to continue. I don't care. So I went out there, and I said, I'm going to go to the flea market every Sunday. I'm telling you, it's discouraging because I keep giving the gloves, and people just walk away. You know, they don't care. Some, they throw them in the floor. I had the gloves, but I'm there. And I said, oh, Lord, I don't like to be here. They're rejecting me all the time. I hate this. But they had to know the truth. But I said, but if you love me, Lord, give me soul so I can give Bible study. And the Lord sent me a family. As soon as I, I spoke like that, a lady come to me in the flea market. I want Bible study. Amen. Could you come to my house? Could you? And I'm like, wow. Amen. Then I have, you know, seven people. We study the Bible because we're not being fed. But I'm not criticizing. I pray for the pastor. We go to prayer meeting. Only my family with him. Now he knows who really is praying for him. Because we cannot be criticizing our, I mean, criticizing all life, all the whole life. We need to pray for the pastor. We need to cry out for them so the Lord can use us. Listen, we have Bible study in the morning, I mean, on Sabbath, the spirit of prophecy in the Bible. And in the afternoon, we're doing the great controversy with the Bible, the group. There is a small group, and it's growing, and the pastor is seeing results. So don't get discouraged. God is wonderful. Amen. Thank you for that testimony. In fact, um, I grew up in a, in a family context where it was easy to criticize other people. Um, and um, so it became easy for me to do that. And, and it's still something that I struggle with. But uh, if you come this afternoon, uh, you will see, we'll talk about conditions and hindrances. We're going to talk about, in a much more personal level, conditions for the reception of the Holy Spirit and hindrances to the reception of the Holy Spirit. And one of those hindrances is a critical spirit. Ellen White says that one of his sure ways to know that the Holy Spirit is not in your life is when you become critical of other people. That's a, that's a scary thought. Because sometimes we do that because we think we are, you know, we are more righteous. And we may be, intellectually speaking, we may be in terms of hardcore fact. But it's the spirit of that that kills you in the process. Hmm? 
And, it doesn't, and what happens when we criticize our pastors? What do they do? Well, the great majority of them, unless they are really, 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 really thick with the Almighty, they will get defensive. And after a while, whatever good you might have to share with them, they'll say, oh, there comes sister such and so, there comes brother such and so, and they're already put up a wall. And you see that. You see, you see how that happens. We've got to make friends. We've got to, we to win. You remember the, the statement of Jesus Matt, in, in uh, Ministry of Healing 143? He mingled with them as one who desired their good. That's number one. That's step number one in anything that has to do with ministry. To mingle with people for them to perceive that you actually want their good. Uh, that makes friends. That opens up the door. So that's why it's important to pay for a pastor, to be friends of a pastor, to support him. Yes, put up with... I mean, but they're, 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 they're people. I mean, they're people. And, uh, and they're, many of them are doing their best in, under difficult circumstances. There's a reason why, not so much in our church, but generally speaking in the Christian church, there are massive defections of ministry. Because it is hard work. It is hard work. And it's hard work particularly not because of the kinds of things they need to do, but it's because the kind of people they need to deal with. See, it's a lot easier to be a computer programmer in that sense. You're, you, know, you can only get mad at a computer, but, uh, you know, but, but, it, but it's difficult when all of the human dynamics are involved and all you have is that human dynamics. So, let's, let's be compassionate and, uh, and keep asking God, Lord, I want to do your will, so focus on what I can do and how I can be a blessing to others. Alright, thank you for those questions, very good questions. And uh, again, don't feel, feel free to uh, raise your hand for anything that is unclear, for any clarification questions. And then we'll have another chance to, to deal with some questions, okay? Well, that was longer than I thought, all right? I'm going back to that question. What will it take for the world to be ready? Remember in the 50s, it didn't happen because the, the small group of Adventist, Adventist believers petered out early. Yet, at the same time, God was really doing something marvelous and began to do something marvelous that impacted the whole world. In 1888... The GC conference session in Minneapolis became famous for one reason, particularly. What was? What was the topic that was hot? Righteousness by faith. That was not intended to be the plan. There was more discussion about Galatians and discussion about historical facts, uh, issues about the, our prophetic scenario and so forth. But, but the Ellen White saw that coming more and more. This is what she anticipated a few months before, a few weeks before. We are impressed that this gathering will be the most important meeting you have ever attended. She says, you should plead to God for His Spirit to descend upon you as He came upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Okay? So she is perceiving that something very important can take place at this meeting. And she says... Pray for the Holy Spirit because if it is that important, the devil will want to get his paws into that. Therefore, we need to really ask for God to, to, to be present, right? I have statement after statement about that. In fact, you can read that in chapter 4 of this. 
And I wanted to read some things, but uh, time is going to be pretty much up. Anyway, it was through A.T. Jones and Wagner that the Lord used these two young pastors from California, you know, anathema, from California, to bring this very... Ellen White says that the, 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 the pastors, the Adventist pastors, have become so good at debating the law and debating the doctrines of Scripture because, you know, the things that separate us from the rest of the Protestant world, that they were masters at it. We, we, we killed everybody, but that's exactly what we did. We killed everybody, you know? And so there was no life. We were right, but we were not good. And that's why she said that Adventist preaching was like as dry as the hills of Gilboa. A.T. Jones and Wagner focused on Jesus and what Jesus did. I mean, they were just relentless, relentless, relentless. They were on Jesus and what Jesus did for us, what Jesus did. In fact, uh, probably our greatest historian ever, uh, what's his name? Um, No, that's uh, probably the greatest current historian. Um, no, not Ray Smith. He was... No, Lothbrook. No, no. Those, they did some history work. No. The guy, he's in the 40s and 50s. Uh, Froome. Thank you. Leroy Froome, you know, examining and analyzing that, he said, Christ was lifted up as never before in our history during those days. To make a long story short, this is what she said in Testimonies to Ministers in 192. The Lord in His great mercy sent a most precious message. She said this in 92, four years later, at, looking back. The Lord in His great mercy sent a most precious message to His people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. You notice that this message was to lift this before the world. Not just before the church. Obviously, it was happening before the church. But she said that what God had in mind is to do this before the world. It presented justification through faith and the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. In other words, it's having the right relationship between obedience and following God and, and, and yielding to God, that's the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus, the, the, two, the two identifying points of the remnant church. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love for the human family. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. That's what's going to convert the world. Jesus and Jesus only will convert the world. You know, when I do evangelism, you know, I, I just finished the net series. I've gotten so many comments by lifelong Adventists who have said, I've gone to evangelistic meetings all my life. But somehow, Jesus was lifted up through these meetings in the doctrines in a way that I had not seen before. That's, what I, that's the attraction. That's the attraction. It is not that two by two, you know, equals 
uh, for. It is, it, is, it is not that. It is the attraction is the person of Jesus. It is the third angel's message, she says. That's what's given to the Adventist church. We are the only ones that are giving that message to take to the world. And that message is a kind of a nasty message, you know. Well, in the sense that, you know, do not worship the beast in his image. That's the third angel's message. And yet, she says, that's the, this is the third angel's message. In other words, when Jesus is lifted up, I can tell anyone something that would normally be offensive to them. And they will accept it and say, I can see that God is behind that. Why? If Jesus is the one that is speaking through you in the process. So it is the third angel's message which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of the Spirit in the light measure. Now this is, she said, this is what will usher the latter rain. This is the great outpouring of God. And it was supposed to have began in 1888. There is much light yet to shine forth from the law of God and the gospel of righteousness. This message, understood in its true character and proclaimed in the Spirit, will lighten the earth with its glory. That's a reference to Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, the fourth angel. You know, that's, that's what she uses many times as a metaphor for what the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the church will do. <coughs> It is through this message. A power that will send the rays of the Son of Righteousness unto all the highways and byways of life. It is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth. Review and Herald, November 22, 1892. And the other statements were from the 1888 materials. Listen to this. If we ever needed the Holy Ghost to be with us, this is what she said on the second day of the meeting, okay, at 5 o'clock in the morning. Because they, yeah, they had meetings at 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> if we ever needed the Holy Ghost to be with us, if we needed to preach in the demonstration of the Spirit, it is at this very time. The baptism of the Holy Ghost will come upon us at this very meeting, if we will have it so. At this very meeting, she said if we will have it so. Let us commence right here in this meeting and not wait until the meeting is half through. We want the Spirit of God here now. This is a transliteration of her speech. In other words, somebody was writing what she was saying. These are her words. We want the Spirit of God here now. We need it and we want it to be revealed in our characters. We want the power of God here and we want it to shine in our hearts. That was her appeal to those ministers and the lay delegates that were there. But the message was opposed by most of the people and a great majority of the ministers and leaders. Why? Because it made them feel bad. Why? Because they, it made them feel like they had not had that as a priority. Of course they had. It was like saying, you had never preached Christ before. Of course I've been preaching Christ all my life. But when you react defensively, that's evidence that something is missing. And they reacted defensively, that's evidence that Christ was not as preeminent in their lives as they thought it was. It was an intellectual thing. It was assumed. But it, it didn't have life. 
And that's why Ellen White encouraged these guys, these two young guys, and supported them against the onslaught of the criticism. Who do you think we are? You know, we're not doing this? Of course we're doing this. And by doing that, by rejecting it with that spirit, they rejected that everything God wanted to do at that meeting and, so, and subsequently. Which was the beginning of the latter reign. A few people caught on to it, however. And those few people started really digging into the Bible, into the beautiful things of God. You know, it was after that meeting that Ellen White began to write the Jesus books. Not a single Jesus book was written before that. You know what I'm talking about, the Jesus books? Step to Christ, Desire of Ages, you know, Thoughts from the Man of Blessings, all, Christ's Object Lessons, all of the Jesus books. It was, it was this meeting that helped her understand that we were a lot less Christ-centered than we thought we were. And then a spate of books on Jesus. That was an opportunity, a huge opportunity lost. Again, we probably wouldn't have been here. We wouldn't have known. The Lord would have come. This thing would have been wrapped up. And most of us wouldn't have been alive. An unwillingness to yield up preconceived opinions, she said, and to accept this truth. I think this is 94. By the way, there was a revival, significant revivals in the Adventist church in 91 and 92, 93, through Ellen White, Wagners and Jones, particularly, as they started. And I, I, I wish I had time to read some of the testimonies from that. Beautiful surrender by major leaders in the church, too. An unwillingness to yield up preconceived opinions and to accept this truth lay at the foundation of a large share of the opposition manifested at Minneapolis against the Lord's message through Brethren Wagner and Jones. By exciting that opposition, Satan succeeded in shutting away from our people in a great measure the special power of the Holy Spirit that God longed to impart to them. That is the special power we're still waiting for. The enemy prevented them from obtaining that efficiency. Remember that word? That efficiency. In, in, in the merman story, in the Chinese leading ladies, those are examples of efficiency. Hmm? That efficiency. The enemy prevented them from obtaining that efficiency which might have been theirs in carrying the truth of the world as the apostles proclaimed it after the day of Pentecost. The light that is to lighten the whole earth with its glory was resisted. Revelation 18.4 was resisted and by the action of our own brethren has been in a great degree kept away from the world. From the world! That's it. God wants to work with you and me first. And then He can work through you and me for the world. What was happening at the same time? Well, the latter part of the 19th century, there was a reawakening. History calls that a holiness movement. Uh, there was a lot of Calvinism, ultra-Calvinism, you know, in the last 200 years. And people started realizing, you know what I mean by that, predestination and all that. Um, and so people started realizing that the, the Christian walk has more has something to do with responding to God and, and reflecting to Him and, 
in a holy life should be a result of that. And so that's holiness movement. Now they had some excesses in what the holiness movement, the excesses it led to, led to the Pentecostal movement. I mean, but that's a whole no, I mean, that's another month of instruction on that. The point is that this led to people outside of the church, in the Christian world, in the Protestant world, to seek after God in ways that they had not sought before. The Keswick Conventions became famous for that. And some of the most significant, if you read Christian biographies, some of the most beautiful stories come from people who, who had a key turning point by attending one of those Keswick, Keswick Conventions in England. In other words, a deep searching after God. Well, as a result of that, one of those guys was Evan Roberts. Evan Roberts was a Welshman who was attending Newcastle Emling College. It was a little later in his life. He was about 26. He was a deeply spiritual young man, but he had a great longing for God to really change the world. One time, a British uh, evangelist came to the college and basically prayed, Lord, bend us. And it caught on in his mind. Bend us. In other words, we are stiff-necked. Bend us. So we can surrender all to you. He went to his room. Evan Roberts went to his room and he said, Lord, bend me. Bend me. And that became the clarion call of what became known as the Welsh Revival of 1905. The Welsh Revival had this logo, bend the church and save the world. Bend the church and save the world. You know what happened as an, as a, as a, as an illustration? He went to his hometown of Lahore. He went to the pastor on a Wednesday prayer meeting night. There were 17 people attending that. You know, fairly typical of many churches, even today. He asked the pastor, I have, I have some things that I'd like to share with the members. A burden I have from God. You know, when a pastor hears that kind of thing, he says, hmm, I'm not sure, you know, what that means. And you get a little nervous about that kind of thing, you know. And so I said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll go through the prayer meeting. If anybody wants to stay to hear you, whatever you have to say, then go ahead. You know, that's fine. And he was fine. Because when somebody's really surrendered in Christ, there's absolutely nothing he pushes for. He just lets God just do that work. So at the end, the 17 people decided to stay for a, a few minutes, and he shared with them in five minutes four things. God says to confess any wrong to God and man. Any wrong you have done, confess that to them, confess it to God. God says to put doubtful habits out of your life. In other words, don't doubt Him anymore. Don't, don't, don't be an unbeliever. Just hold on to what he says. God says, obey the Spirit promptly. I mean, these are clear. Boom, 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 one after another. And then confess your faith to God publicly. This is what God is saying. As a result of that, 16 out of those 17 people were deeply convicted. These are prayer meeting type people. You know what I'm talking about? These are, these are the best people. These are the people who follow God to begin with. They were deeply convicted. And that began the Welsh Revival. 
that spread to other churches and then other churches and then other people and other churches to the point that you know his own when your own family is converted because of your testimony you know that some God is doing something special right because that's the last frontier isn't it that's the last frontier so here's an example of what happened with the revival in Wales drunkenness was immediately cut in half and any taverns went bankrupt. Crime was so diminished that judges were presented with white gloves signifying that there were no cases of murder, assault, rape, or robbery of the like to consider. The police became unemployed in many districts. Can you imagine that? I mean, that is some radical changes in people's lives, right? In fact, you know, somebody asked the police one day, you know, there were, there were <coughs> a group of policemen and, and a journalist from London came and asked, you know, what do you guys do now that everybody's nice? He says, you know, well, we used to do two things. We used to take care of people after, you know, in bars, but now they're all closed, so that's taking And then we used to take care of people after football games, you know, people who are drunk and all that. Now that's, that's everybody's kind of nice, and so what we did is we decided to make quartets. So we have four quartets. <laughs> And so what they did is they started singing in churches. That's what the police is doing now. They're singing in churches because they have nothing else to do. <laughs> Not only that, stoppages occurred in coal mines. Wales is big for coal mines. Not due to unpleasantness between management and workers, but because so many foul-mouthed miners became converted and stopped using foul language that the horses which hauled the coal tracks in the mines could no longer understand what was being said to them. <laughs> that is radical change. Huh? That's radical change. The Welsh revival spread to Scandinavia, Central Europe, to Canada, to the US, to Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Brazil, Mexico, Chile, the Korean revival in 1906, the Manchurian revival in 1908. It finally stopped by 1914. Why? Because of the world. Why? Here's my personal opinion. I cannot vouch for this except for what I've read in my personal analysis. I believe that the devil was trying desperately to say, how are we going to stop this? How are we going to stop this? And it took, a, it took the first World War I to stop it. The Great War to stop that. Remember, the world, God is working in the world. God will work through the world. It is, he is interested in working in our midst because the world doesn't know the message we have. The world is diminished right now. The world is diminished by our lack of ability to connect with Him. We have what the world needs. But the problem is the world doesn't need us as much. They need Jesus. They need Jesus in us. And that is the missing link. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. You know this statement, right? You know that I've analyzed this a number of years ago and I found seven statements by Ellen White where she uses two superlatives in one sentence. Seven times she uses that. Two superlatives such as greatest, most urgent. In seven statements. Out of a hundred thousand pages of manuscript she only uses 
three superlatives in one statement. This one. This one. In this one, she uses three most, most, most in one statement. The revival of true godliness among us is the greatest, that's one superlative, and most urgent. In other words, it can't be greater. It can be more urgent. Of all our needs, of everything we need, this is the biggest thing we need. And she says, to seek this should be our first work. It's interesting. All this is done only by God. God can only bring about this kind of thing, right? And yet she says, oh, this is our first work. Obviously, it is not. we cannot produce revival. We can only be willing to be used. We need to be the, the instruments, the, the receptors of revival. But that takes work, she says. That takes work. How does she say that? Our Heavenly Father is more willing to give His Holy Spirit to them that ask Him than our earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. So the work has to do with the reception of the Holy Spirit. It is our work, how? By confession, humiliation. Humiliation means surrender there. Not in terms of, you know, somebody's humiliated in the way we use the term today. That means surrender. Confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer to fulfill the conditions. Those are conditions for corporate revival. The conditions upon which God has promised to grant us His blessing. A revival need be expected only in answer to prayer. That's uh, First Selected Messages 121. Famous statement. What are the conditions? Confession, surrender, repentance, earnest how much of that is happening in your midst? How much of that is happening in your church? This is in the context of group. This is in the context of our work, not just my personal work. It is not simply my kneeling before God and, and confessing to Him and surrendering to Him. Obviously, that's part of that. It is, are we doing this together? That's exactly what happened at Pentecost. That's what happened. That's what brought that together. But it is almost as difficult to bring people together on a steady basis. Oh, we can, everything is possible for three days. But it is almost impossible to bring people together with a determination to say, we're going to do this until something happens. When Jesus told those disciples, he didn't say, tarry in Jerusalem ten days. We do that kind of thing. We do a weekend retreat. We do this, conferences. We, we, we may do even ten days of special prayer in the church. Jesus didn't say, Terry, ten days. He says, Terry, until. Until. And for them, it only took ten days. For us, it might take three years. My point is, we need to do what he said we need to do which is to stick to that and to, and to press together and to seek for God to do this. And these are the components. It is through that that these, the community takes place. When you come together and you seek after God with such earnestness, community will eventually take place. When the focus is on Calvary, because if you know the confession, surrender, and, and repentance cannot take place unless you're focused on Jesus. It cannot take place. It will not take place unless Jesus is the center of your thoughts in the process. 
in Asbury College in 1970. This is a Methodist college. I'm going to give you an example of what could happen. A lot of young people here, I want you to think about this. They have chapel every Tuesday. In most, by the way, in most seminaries and in most key Protestant schools, they have chapel every day, five days a week. But we bellyache for having chapel once a week. Anyway, they had chapel that Tuesday. The dean gave a testimony. Instead of a sermon, he gave his personal testimony of what Jesus was doing in his life. That moved uh, some of the students who raised their hands and said, can I share something? So, and he invited them. He just kind of tossed away his scripted notes or whatever he had planned to do. And he invited them to come up and, and they share the testimony. The chapel time ended and there was now a long line of people. Uh, somebody went to the organ and started playing just as I am. And people started moving forward to surrender to God. People started just dropping to their knees and, and praying together as spontaneously. Just surrendering all to the Lord Jesus. The classes closed. I mean, that was wisdom. That was unusual wisdom by that college group of administrators and professors. It doesn't happen. You don't do that. But they closed the classes for the rest of that day. And people kept surrendering to the Lord Jesus in that chapel. People kept coming more and more. You know, the word got out. And so people came coming. This went on through that afternoon. It went on through the evening. And it went on through the next, of the, the next day. It went on through the entire day. By the second day, this is at the college. It started affecting the seminary, which is a separate institution but associated with Asbury College. The seminary is the graduate for pastors, right? And so, all night prayers now. The pastors were in all night prayers. The wives confessing sin in, in one another and all of that. I mean, the, the Spirit of God, the confession, the surrendering, the, the repentance, all of that was taking place so much so that the chapel service lasted eight days. Non-stop. Non-stop. Eight days. But that was not just a, oh, that was a super-duper long, uh, you know, prayer service. No. It only took about a day before ministry teams, witnessing teams, started sharing what God had done for them. And they started going to nearby towns. And then they started going to other churches. And then they started going to other schools. So much so that the result says, 2,000 witnessing teams throughout the U.S., bring a revival to 130 colleges from that one single college in scores of churches. And you know how it affected the Adventist church? It affected even the Adventist church. It affected, it impacted a number of the SDA colleges at that time. So much so that some people believe that the, 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 SM, the student missionary movement that was born in 1971 in our church was in part the result of what had happened in Asbury College in 1970. The extraordinary work of God. People willing to be used to, to surrender all. To, to comply with the conditions, as Ellen White says. The conditions 
Could there be a convocation of all the churches of earth? The object of their united cry should be for the Holy Spirit. When we have that, Christ, our sufficiency is ever present. We shall have every want supplied. Every want, not most, every want supplied. Well, my time is done. I could tell you, I will probably share that either in this afternoon or, or tomorrow. What happened at a church where I, I had the privilege of being a part of What God did in that church. Remarkable things. Remarkable things. In a very typical suburban, mostly white church. Or white, basically. Professional church. What will it take for the world to be ready? It will take for the church to be ready. What will it take to be, for the world to be ready for the, the, the coming of Jesus? It will take for the church to be ready. And what will it take for the church to be ready? These two premises. The Acts 1-2 dynamics. That is Calvary. Seeing a clear picture of Calvary. That's what 1888 was all about. Trying to be and community, bringing all of this together under God. We'll talk a lot more about that this afternoon, particularly tomorrow. This afternoon we'll talk about conditions and hindrances for spirit filling in a much more personal way, what's going to happen in your life as individuals, um, regardless of what happens with other people. Well, let's pray together. Maybe this afternoon we'll manage time a little bit better and um, because I wanted to spend a little time for us praying together. So we'll do that this afternoon. But let's bow our heads. Let's pause for about 30 seconds. You talk to the Lord Jesus and then I'll close with you. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC. A supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.